Great to see you. There's some notes over here if you'd like to grab a copy of them if you don't have them. Uh, they look like last week's notes, but I can assure they're not. The front page is like last week, the back page is uh, this evening's uh, lesson, if you like, or, or understanding. But what we are going to do, which is always a good thing, and I'll go grab one of those pages, is we're going to quote. Last week we um, did the Nicene Creed, this week we might do the Apostles' Creed. So if you'd like just to stand with me and we'll just uh, affirm this creed together. Okay, the Apostles' Creed compiled by 700 AD. We're not quite sure uh, historically when it was actually completed, but we think it was some point in time around there. So as you can see, it's not the Apostles of Peter, John, James, it's the Apostolic Fathers, but has the name, the Apostles' Creed. So uh, let's, uh, let's read this together. I believe in God, the Almighty, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, have a seat. Once again, as I said last week, don't be concerned about the word Catholic there. The Catholic is universal. I believe in the universal church. Uh, not as we would understand it today. There may be some things in there that you don't understand. That's fine. Hopefully we will cover some of those things as we go uh, through this series together. Look, last week we spent some time looking at the uh, historical development of the, the doctrine of the Trinity. As I mentioned last week, you'll never find the word Trinity in the Bible. It's not a word search we can do. It's not a... Uh, a lexicographic thing we can take on, but the concept of Trinity is everywhere. Uh, we looked at it last week. We looked at the aspect of the Trinity in the Old Testament. We used some texts there to show, show uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit were in action. They were clearly seen in some of the text. They may not have been understood by those who were reading them. They may not have been uh, correlated to what would happen going forward from that time, but they were in the text. As we, we look at the full canon of Scripture, we can see that. Because as you can and know and appreciate, the Bible is about a progressive revelation. We don't get the full revelation of God in the first verse. Or some say we may, in the beginning, God. That's a pretty full revelation. But you don't get to understand what that actually means until you actually move through the balance of the text. And God reveals himself in a progressive way from Genesis 1 through to, to the end of Revelation. And he primarily reveals himself through the person and work of Christ. And we will see that. But he also reveals himself through the work of the Spirit. And we will see that also. Now, as we looked at it last week, we looked at the, the canons and the councils that, that occurred in the early part of church history from 
around 325 AD through the end of 800 AD. And we understood that as we looked at uh, some of those things, we saw the, the early development of this doctrine uh, was based on the fact of heresies that were consistently being fought out. Uh, we looked at what um, modernism was. We, we used our good friends Bill, Bob and, and Patrick to try and understand uh, a little bit about that. And uh, that, that is uh, the little video we saw. So we looked at modalism, we looked at um, subordinationism, we looked at some other, okay, Steve, some other areas of uh, heresy which forced the theologians of the day, and, and in those days they didn't call them theologians, they had a highly exalted name called the divines. Now, how about calling yourself a divine? We, you know, pastorally, we're no longer going to call ourselves pastors, we're just going to call ourselves divines. It's, it lacks a little bit of humility, really, doesn't it? But um, these well-learned men who had received uh, eyewitness accounts from the apostles and then the next generation had, were combining under God, the canon of scripture, what was inspired and what was not, would hear these things, hear these treaties, and then they would say, no, that does not line up with scripture. And that's an important point. When we look at any doctrine, our prime authority is God's word first. Even though as we discuss the doctrine of the Trinity, a lot of what we're discussing is actually uh, documents of ancient people. But you've got to understand that they have studied scripture in a deep way to form that. And that's what we aim to do here. We aim to put scripture in its historical context first. The scripture was written to a person at a time, at a place. Okay. Each element of scripture is, it spans over 1,500 or so years there. Uh, it's written for a purpose. But because God's word is inspired and because God's spirit grabs hold of his written word, it's applicable to you and I. And that's the beauty of God's word. That's the standard of our faith. It's, a, it's a instruction for life. So every jot and tittle, every aspect of Scripture is inspired by God for our instruction, for our teaching, for our equipping, for our training in righteousness. Second Timothy 3.16 tells us that. So I just wanted to make that point, you know, because in church history, if you look at different denominations, you can see the denomination that will hold up its church tradition higher than the word of God. And you'll see the disaster that that causes. You will see churches that hold up the word of man or the practice of the church equal or greater than scripture. And disasters occur. We're not be the other way around, folks. We hold scripture highly and everything we do should be um, shaped by God's word. This forms our experience. This forms our love for the Saviour. This forms our love for one another. 
It's God's inerrant, inspired word, and it is immeasurable. Immeasurable. The riches in God's word are so deep, we cannot comprehend. But boy, it's fun trying. And that's where our heart needs to be as followers of Christ. So we looked at some of these notable dates, some of these notable councils in the development of our doctrine. And one thing I wanted to to cover uh, briefly is, so why is this important? Sure, we talked about these things, and I want to give you probably six. I had a list of ten originally, but I've I've trimmed it to six. Uh, No particular reason why it's six. It could be ten, it could be twenty. But I think, uh, to put it out there, these things, I think, are important for us to understand. The doctrine of the Trinity is both central and necessary for the Christian faith to be what it is. See, if you remove the Trinity, then faith disintegrates. If you remove the eternal will of God and the eternal decree of God that he would redeem through sending his son, through the power of his spirit, that we do not have a faith. If you remove aspects of the Trinity of God when it comes to the resurrection and ascension of Christ, you don't have a faith. Because if Christ has not ascended by the power of the spirit, then we are to be pitied. We have nothing to proclaim. So the first point is, it is both central and necessary for our faith. The second point is, as Christians grow into Christ-likeness, or we sometimes call that sanctification, as we grow into understanding our walk of faith, it is rightly to be understood that we must see this process of sanctification as the work of a triune God. This grace of life, this process of sanctification, uh, as God reveals himself through his word, as we view the triune God, he is vitally involved in our walk towards Christ-likeness. We're going to spend all next week talking about that one point alone because I think that's where the rubber hits the road. You know, our appreciation of, of the triune God and our process of growing to be like him is an essential part of understanding the doctrine of the Trinity in a more deeper way. The next two points are very similar, but um, starkly different. The triune relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and for your, your note-taking, you just put Father, F, Son, S, Holy Spirit, HS. You know what that means. It's... Uh, Helps you keep up the speed. So the, uh, the triune relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit causes us to marvel at the unity of the triune God. So as we discuss the triune God, that this unity, and it's not just a unity that has happened now, it's a unity from eternity past. And that blows our minds. So before anything was, this triune God was. And perfect in unity and essence. That's the word we'll use a bit tonight is essence. Perfect in unity and essence. 
That's point three. So the, the triune relation of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, should cause us to marvel, to worship, to to ask to have more revelation of the mighty unity of the triune God. The fourth point is the triune relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit should cause us to marvel at the diversity within the triune God. And that's an issue we will wrestle with tonight. We have a God who's one in essence, perfect unity, and yet we have a God that's three in persons. We marvel at that diversity. Because the three persons have different roles and they have different levels of authority and they have different areas of submission and all this sort of stuff. So how does that work? And, uh, but this is why we need to understand it and understand the difference between God's unity and essence and diversity in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The fifth thing I believe is uh, of vital importance as we look through this is uh, the triune relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit should cause us to marvel at this authority and submission structure. It should cause us to marvel at that that has existed eternally in the three persons of the Godhead. This authority and submission structure that we will start looking at isn't something that was dreamed up once man fell. It was something that's existed for eternity. And that is incredible to think about. So it's just determining the three persons of the Godhead, each of whom is equally and fully God. So that's just something up the side that will really blow your mind. This authority submission and this diversity has been there forever and ever and ever and ever in the same way as they are equally and fully God in essence. And finally, as a, a major application of the Trinity, and we don't talk about it enough, and we, we should, is this doctrine, rightly understood, uh, should provide one of the most important but neglected patterns of how human life and human relationships are to be conducted. That's the real practical side of it. We have this, this view of a, a triune God and perfect submission and perfect unity and perfect essence and perfect authority. And as we look at that, we can see that as he has created us in his image, we too can look at that beautiful union and say, God can create that in us. With him, the power of the cross and with one another through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So they're just things I'd like you to think through and we, we will address, as I said, especially the one on sanctification next week. Uh, that will be our primary focus. But tonight we're going to, we're going to look at uh, a uh, further historical 
event, which I think is important in the, in the development of our doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, then we will uh, look at some important Greek words, uh, which uh, you'll have a bit of fun with as we go down through the page. And they may look particularly annoying at this point in time, or what does that actually mean? That will all will be revealed in the process of what the doctrine of the Trinity is about, and hopefully be a great encouragement to you as we go through it. Now, there's one event that we didn't talk about last week, and I, I thought, as I was preparing for this week, it was important to cover it. Remember last week we talked about the, uh, the council at Nicaea in 325 was a major council, and it was there to look predominantly at the claims of Arianism. Now, Arianism was a, a heresy. Can you remember what that heresy was? Arianism. Anybody? Should have bought your notes. Okay. <laughs> Arianism was ba- the basic heresy that um, Christ was a created being. Okay. Uh, we have Arianism afoot in today's world in many different forms. The most prominent proponent of Arianism would be the Jehovah's Witness. Uh, to the degree they change words in uh, the first chapter of the Gospel of John to uh, propagate their position, as well as verses in Colossians and in Hebrews. The key text which we would say this proves that God is, or Jesus is fully divine. They play with it. And uh, they started doing that in about I think it was 1880, something like that, and have subsequently uh, had their own scriptures produced that reflect that position. It's a heresy. Other ones uh, you may not be aware of, but the Seventh-day Adventists also hold uh, to a form of Arianism. Uh, I've got to be careful with that. That's probably when the Seventh-day Adventist was first formed, uh, individual particular Churches may hold a different opinion, but if you went on to the, the global Seventh-day Adventist site and you'd look through that, they would uh, say that uh, Christ is a created being. So uh, it's not a new heresy. It's been around since uh, 300 AD, uh, and, uh, but still is a heresy. So when this was going on, uh, what, what happened is Athanasius, who was a... A very uh, good theologian was attacking um, Arius in this area. And there were three other gentlemen that aided in this. And these guys are named uh, the Cappadocians. So you've got a note there about the Cappadocians. Now, I want you to remember these names because they, they are significant in church history. You've got Basil the Great of Caesarea. So, you know, he likes, he's probably also would have put in there his name as the divine as well, but he, had, he got Basil the Great of Caesarea, and he was 330 to 379 AD. Uh, and you've got his brother, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, so that's spelled N-A-Z-I-A-N-Z-U-S, so Gregory, and he was Basil's brother. And then another fellow, Gregory of NYSA, N-Y-S-S-A. So we had two Gregories and one Basil. And these guys were known as the, the Cappadocians. And they were a major force to counter Arius along with Athanasius. And uh, their two key understandings was, were, were this. And, and they were significant in formulating the doctrine of the Trinity. 
significant. Uh, their first key understanding by the Cappadocians was the cornonia, God as mutual love. In 1 John, you read consistently, God is love. It's a major attribute. And, and when you start thinking about that particular term, God is love. Why? Because he sent his son. God is love because he wants to redeem. God is love because he wants to atone for sin. God is love because he provides a way of salvation. Yes, God is just, etc., etc., but God is love. And this was a major thing for the Cappadocians. And they saw God as love, not just as God the Father, but in union with the Son and the Spirit. It was mutual. You could see in communion between the Father, Son, and Spirit, this enormity of God's love. And that made them inseparable. It made the essence of the Godhead completely inseparable because of this love bond. So that was one of the key understandings that they had drawn from Scripture as they went to fight the battle against Arius, that God, as a triune being, has existed for eternity with this communion of love which is unshakable. You know, you read in John 17 when, when Jesus cries out to his Father in the high priestly prayer. I'm just going to turn to it because I want to quote it correctly. John 17. John 17. Um, Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Am I no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given you them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not in the world, just as I am not in the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The key thing in that verse, that portion of scripture, is a little bit further up, so I've just lost my place. Verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. That's an incredible statement when you think about it. Jesus is praying to his Father for his disciples. He was praying that these disciples would experience the same bond that him and, him and his father have. It's a deep bond of love. As you read that, it causes to worship. Because as followers of Christ, 
That's Christ's prayer for us as well. That we may understand and be compelled by Christ's love. That we may understand and be compelled in such a way that we share his love with a dying world. Just an aside. Sorry, I'll get back to where I was. So the Cappadocians, that's what they understood. Uh, this mutual love concept inside the Trinity and this was critical for their defence against Arius. Now the thing they did, the second point they did is, uh, see the, the Arians, had something that they they thought they just could not know God. All right? They said because and, and the the falsity of this was this. Because God does not know his own being any better than we do, his essence is no more manifest to himself than it is to us. Now you think about that statement, that's a heretical statement. So the Arians would say that God doesn't even know himself. So therefore, how can we know him? And uh, that was a horrendous statement. Whereas the Cappadocians came down and says, okay, let's think about the unknowability, the divine unknowability of God. And they said this, every theological expression fails to convey properly the meaning of the speaker. Our intellect is weak and our tongue is yet more inadequate. So they understood that as a person, yes, we we do have trouble to know God, but they they went further on and would say this, and yet God is not completely unknowable. He's not completely unknowable. We come to know him truly through what he has done. We come to know him because of what he's done through Jesus. We come to know him when we look outside and see his creation. They use the word essence or energies as a distinction. So it's difficult for us to know his essence, his, his, his inwardness and this triunity in God, but we can see his energies. We can see his work through the work and person of Christ. And they came to this conclusion, we know our God from his energies, his work, but we do not claim to draw near to his essence. Because, yes, we do acknowledge that that's unfathomable. For his energies or his work come down to us, but his essence remains unknowable. That was Basil. So that's how they wrestle with this situation. Yes, God clearly is, is knowable because of the incarnation. Because of who Christ is. He is essence God. But in person, he is the son of God. There was one uh, major thing that they worked on. It was in Hebrews chapter 1. So if you just turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. This became a major part of their 
doctrine. These are wonderful verses. I'm, I'm going to have to read the four verses. I, I love these verses. These are magnificent, but we're going to, only going to concentrate on chapter, uh, verse 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having been as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I want to draw you back to verse 3. This is an important distinction. It's around Christology and it's also around the doctrine of the Trinity. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That word exact imprint is a word called um, hypostasis. And this is the word that they started using. And uh, this became significant to explain this union uh, that existed. Hypostatus is only used on three or four occasions in the New Testament. In this sense, this is the only time it's used to say this is the exact representation of God. Exact means like. You can't get any more exact. Same essence. So as opposed to using the word essence, they started using the word hypostasis. Christ and God and Spirit are all one in essence. They have this exact representation. So that's uh, where they came to it from a theological perspective. And they were following Athanasius in that. And they were following the first council of Nicaea in defining that. So they define these two terms. They uh, define hypostasis of the persons and they defined um, the essence or usia. is another word for essence. That is of the Godhead. And they came to this conclusion. That is the Godhead for God. It, if I may so express it, is indivisibly divided and dividedly conjoined. Let me read that again because that's kind of interesting to try and take in. This is what they thought, that it was indivisibly divided and dividedly conjoined. And they used this term many times in their defense against Arius. And it really was saying Father, Son, and Spirit are one in essence. You cannot rip that apart. But in their personhood, they had different roles. I'll leave the Cappadocians there. I had much more to say about them, but I won't. Uh, the fascinating study, if you want to understand a little bit more about the historical roots of the Trinity, read the Cappadocians. Now, if you want a good resource for that, there's free online resources these days, which are magnificent. It's called the Ethereal Library, and I can give you the URL later, and you can go on there, and you can, you can pick up all the Apostolic Fathers, all these writings, 
and you can read them at your leisure. Most of them have been translated into English, so you don't have to have Latin or Greek. Um, so you can, you can plod through them. And uh, it's an excellent, excellent website uh, for authentic materials. So that was the Cappadocians. That was the historical stuff I wanted to look at. See, post-Constantinople um, and Nicaea, so post-381, and we had this creed which you have here, um, there were some other things which were being discussed. And uh, there was a difference between two schools of thought. In those days, you had Western thought and Eastern thought. And uh, the East tended to say that the Father is the centre of the divine unity. So when you think about that, they would say, okay, the Father is the centre of the divine unity. It tends towards being subordinate, okay, as we talked about the heresies last week. But that was a general flavour if you were going to an Orthodox church in the East, that that would be uh, your thought, that the Father was the centre. In the West, uh, which we're, if you go down 1900 years, is probably where we sit from a Protestant theological perspective. It became the divine essence was the central thing of unity. But in just saying that, it became real difficult for, for the West to account for the real eternal distinctions between the persons. Uh, so we would tend to go towards modalism. We'd make God a mode based on divine essence. Also in the West, we tend to use this mathematical thing, right? Three and one. Whereas the correct understanding of the Trinity is one plus one plus one equals one. So we have this mathematical conundrum which doesn't sort of compute with our brains for years. We say, one plus one plus one equals three. So therefore, immediately going into modes. But in the economy of the Trinity, it's one plus one plus one equals one. Because the essence is one. And by doing that, by the mathematical tendencies we have, it becomes a very impersonal view of God. And uh, the Holy Spirit becomes very subordinated. Uh, in the whole equation. However, in the East, even though they would tend to go towards a subordinate type view, they would always see the, the, the triune God as a vital part of worship and liturgy. And uh, this is a strength of the East. But in saying that also, they'd also have this tendency, like we talked about, of we can't really know God. Uh, so we can't really know the eternal and imminent. This is another word I'll use. Imminent means that God dwells within us through his spirit. He's there with us. Now I think for our understanding of the Trinity... It's vital we look at both views and then come to some agreement with East and West to formulate a view. And that's what we're going to attempt to do. And uh, 
we're going to have a bit of fun with this. So let's, let's hold on to your hats. <laughs> See, it's interesting because when I did the survey, and most of you know that uh, this series is based, I, I put a survey out to around 25 people, and I got some responses. And, and these were some of the responses to three of the questions which I'd like to share with you. Uh, the, one of the questions was, well, you need to pick a, uh, a metaphor or a picture that for you best describes the Trinity. And the options were H2O, uh, egg, clover, three-leaf clover, or um, no picture at all. And 75% of the respond, respondents looked at, thought it was either H2O, egg, or a clover, and 25% said there's no picture that really can explain it. So that was interesting. There was uh, some further questions in the survey which uh, were along the same lines. And one of the questions was, with the doctrine of the Trinity, it maintains that God is one in essence but three in persons. What word would best describe the relationship between the three persons of the Trinity? And the options for that was um, honour, harmony, submission, relational, eternal. 50% of the respondents said, yeah, eternal was a, a good word to describe the relationship between the three persons of the Trinity. So that was encouraging. But some of those other words were also well represented, and uh, hence we're going to look at some of those things tonight as well, because it's important to understand, well, what is this union in the Trinity? Yes, one in essence, but three in persons. What does that actually look like? And then a final question, which was a bit of a tricky question. Uh, I always like putting tricky questions in just to see what happens. And uh, the question was, could any of the persons of the Trinity become incarnate? Could any of the persons of the Trinity become incarnate? 41% of the respondents said yes, uh, 16% said no, and 41% said I'm not sure. So we'll address that issue as well this evening. And... Uh, work through it, because I think they are, they are important issues in our understanding of the Trinity. See, the doctrine of the Trinity affirms that God's whole and undivided essence belongs equally, eternally, simultaneously, and fully to each of the three distinct persons of the Godhead. It's a definition on your page. It's a great definition. Bruce Weir uh, grabbed this definition from looking at the ancient documents. The doctrine of the Trinity affirms that God's whole and undivided essence belongs equally, eternally, simultaneously, and fully to each of the three distinct persons of the Godhead. See, what the statement is claiming and affirming is that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit each possesses the divine nature equally. So when we say that the divine nature is equal in all three persons, we're avoiding what? Arianism. Okay. Eternally. We talk about eternally, so equally, eternally, simultaneously, eternally, so as to avoid thinking of God's nature as created. Simultaneously. When we say that word, it's so to avoid modalism. God didn't come in modes at some point in time. We talked about that last week. You know, God wasn't God the Father up until the incarnation, God the Son from incarnation till ascension, and God the Spirit beyond the ascension. God is not in modes. 
He's three in one. And um, fully, when we say the word and fully to each of the three distinct persons, the word fully is to avoid any uh, tripartite type understanding. What I mean by that is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, are not each one third God. So we don't divide it up like an orange or like a three leaf clover. We've got one third Father, one third Son, one third Spirit. They're all one in divine essence. Can you start wrapping your mind around that? It's incredible, isn't it, when you think about it? You see, there are no graduations of deity. Deity is deity. If you're divine, you're divine. Sorry, I'll go back. I haven't finished the quote. But each is fully God, equally God, and this is true eternally and simultaneously. So I hope that that quote helps you understand a little bit about the essence and the personhood. Now we're going to concentrate a little bit on the personhood. There are three persons in the Godhead, as you're aware, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're all completely identical in being. Each person is holy God. So they're not parts or they're not modes or they're not some other concoction that we put in our heads. They're all God. The three together are no more God than one by itself. I said there are no graduations of deity, therefore all three are to be worshipped. And this is what the creeds tell us. Now, there's sometimes difficulty when we think about worshipping. Who do we worship? We worship the triune God of the universe, Father, Son, and Spirit. You've got two words on your piece of paper there. You've got, what's the difference between those two words, the homoousius and homoousius? What's, what's the two What's the difference? An eye, yeah, a little eye. These, uh, these words provided the debates of 381 because one of the words, homoousius, the one with the eye, means similar in nature. Okay, it means similar in nature. And this is what the Arians and semi-Arians held to. That's where they would come up. Okay, no, Christ is only similar in nature, therefore he's not actually God, therefore he's actually created. Homer, Isius, Isius, I'll say. But actually the word homoousius means exact same nature. The word similar goes. And that's what the Cappadocians came to. That's what Athanasius came to. That's what the councils came to. That this divine essence and these three persons are all identical in being. They're all each holy God. And there's no graduations of deity, therefore all three are to be worshipped. 
and the three persons mutually indwell one another in a dynamic communion is the second point we'll look at. And this is known as the doctrine of perichoesis. Point four there. So the three persons are not only identical in being, identical in essence, same nature. They mutually indwell one another in a dynamic communion. And this, when I started reading about this, I was thinking, I don't understand that. But I accept it. Because that is our sovereign Lord, our triune God. So this means mutual indwelling, or even better, mutual interpenetration and and refers to the understanding of both the Trinity and Christology. This perichosis was was used in Greek theology by a fellow by the name of John of Damascus to describe the inner relation between the persons of the Godhead. This is where it first came up, perichosis. 20th century, Karl Barth uh, said on this, I don't like the particular view Karl Barth has because he uses the term the divine modes. So when you say the divine modes, what is that normally? What do you think about when you think modes? Modalism, you put God into three different different modes. It would be better if he had said um, the divine essence or, or the divine persons actually. He says the divine modes of being mutually conditioned and permeate one another so completely that one is always in the other two. That was in his church dogmatics book. So I agree with the back end of the statement about perichosis that Bart has said that uh, it does mean they're always there. Trinitarian and Trinitarian theology, perichosis begins with the unity of natures or a, a strict. Uh, cons- it's another big word. I don't want to use it. Actually, I'm not going to use it. Just think of it as the unity of natures. Being in each other without any any coalescence. So. It is a huge part of understanding the Trinity, this deep unity in the persons. However, let's look at the other side of it. This is the Eastern-Western thing going on here. The three persons are irreducibly different from one another. How do we know that? Read God's word, we find out they're completely different from each other. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. They have three, well, not completely different, more than three. They, they are just different. And one of the primary demonstrations of that is the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, the incarnation. Why is that so different? It's because, have you ever thought of this? That makes the Son... Christ Jesus forever united to humanity. Have you ever thought about that? When the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, that means forever Christ 
is united to us in humanity. That's not the case for the Father or the Spirit. That's the domain of Christ alone. And yet they're one in essence. I think one of the best ways of trying to describe this type of thing that goes on amongst the Trinity is uh, the next word that's on your sheet there called taxis. And that's not taxi, get me out of here. It's taxis. And taxis means simply order. It has a range of meanings in Greek. It was often used in uh, military context and had the idea of rank and telling a hierarchy of some kind. Okay? Um, and that particular view of taxes fitted really well with the Arian heresy because they viewed uh, the Trinity as a graduation between the Father and the Son with the Son having a, a lower and a subordinate status. That's what Arius believed. However, taxes can also mean and it's also used of role, office, class, orderliness and regularity of stars, order in the church or monastery or an ordered constitution. So the second major use of the word, in, in a sense, is not an order of rank. It's closer to what is fitting and suitable rather than a sense of hierarchy. And that's from Lampe's lexicon. Another good Greek lexicon puts it this way. It's an arrangement in which someone or something functions, arrangement, nature, manner, condition, outward aspect. And you have uh, examples of that in Hebrews, which I don't have time to go into. But I think the most common order we see I want to spend time on this in closing is in Ephesians chapter 1 when it comes to salvation. Let's open these verses and we will conclude with these. These are wonderful because it gives us the the all-encompassing view of God who is triune. Blessed be God and the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He protestined us for, uh, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him, that's Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he sent forth in Christ. As the plan of the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's the triune God in action, folks. In a powerful way. It is from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. The Father has sent the Son. The Spirit has sealed us. And that's a perfect order of submission and authority. It's from the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. And sometimes this this order of triunity is, is reversed. You think about your response to God's grace, which is by the Holy Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. You see, within this order, we see an eternal and an inherent expression of authority and submission within the Godhead. There's no jockeying for position and authority and submission. It's mutually together in essence. See, both authority and submission are good because both these characteristics are expressive of the triune God. In the eternal decrees, eternal decrees from eternity past, we see God the Father sends the Son and the Son never sends the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, but the Father never proceeds from the Holy Spirit or the Son. So we have a, a clear distinction in authority and submission. But when we have a clear distinction in authority and submission, that does not entail one's superiority and another's inferiority. That's important to understand. Just because you have authority and submission does not mean you have superiority or inferiority. Think about your marriages. If you were to run your marriages on authority and, and um, inferiority, it would be a crumbling mess. See, God, the triune God, has this in perfect unity, authority and submission. Let's read back in Ephesians in closing. Verse 15 of that chapter we've just read. For this reason, what reason? This reason of... uh, the landscape of our salvation by the Father, through the Son, sealed by the Spirit. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints, I do not give, uh, cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age but also the one to come. 
What a wonderful anthem of praise. And we get to enjoy that because of the triune God. Perfect in communion. Perfect in essence. Displaying this to us through the Son. Through the power of the Spirit. He's worthy to be praised. Worthy to be praised. Thanks, Luke. We'll sing our final song. Which is the creed.